context, I tend to think of data-driven leadership as challenging assumptions and gathering information to provide guidance and insight into important decisions. So we do a snapshot every year of how many students went on particular programs. Based on those numbers, we can see our students are voting with their feet. It doesn't mean that we drop every low enrollment program, but it allows us to challenge that assumption of students like this type of program, students don't like that type of program, and make a data-informed decision about which programs to keep and which to drop from our portfolio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with WorldStrides, and I'm so excited about this week's episode. Today, we're diving into data-driven leadership in international education. We'll be talking about how leaders and practitioners at any level can leverage data to go further, faster in their work to advocate for themselves and for their department, and to be more effective in that sacred duty we all hold dear in international education, creating more life-changing moments for our students. In particular, we'll be taking a look at one of my very favorite institutions, and one that I've had the pleasure of working with for nearly 15 years. That would be the jewel in the crown of the University of Massachusetts system, none other than that flagship campus, UMass Amherst. UMass Amherst boasts a rich history and a commitment to fostering global perspectives among students with an extensive portfolio of study abroad programs and a dynamic team dedicated to advancing international education at all levels. UMass truly sets the bar high for our field. In this episode, we have the privilege of tapping into the wealth of knowledge and expertise of our very distinguished guest, Mark Ekman, Director of Education Abroad at UMass Amherst. Mark is a leading authority in our field and one who I can always count on to tell it like it is. In addition to his role at UMass, Mark has also held leadership positions at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and St. John's University in New York City. I learn so much every time I talk with Mark and I can't wait to pick his brain on this topic today. So dear listeners, stay tuned because you do not want to miss this episode. Mark is going to shed light on how data-driven leadership has transformed education abroad at UMass, and how these insights can be applied to institutions of all shapes, sizes, and backgrounds. Mark Ekman, welcome, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Zach. It's wonderful to be here. To begin, I'd like to ask for you to please give us an overview of your career trajectory and the education abroad ecosystem at UMass Amherst. I've been at UMass uh, for just about four years now. It feels a lot longer because we have to do that, that pandemic math of uh, one pandemic year feeling like four or five. But, and prior to that, I was in a similar role at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And then going back before that, as you mentioned, I was at St. John's University. We don't need to go much further back than that because we'll start to age ourselves. <laughs> I've been in the field now for over 15 years, and I came in at a time when the field was really redefining itself and and there was a real sea change in terms of a move towards more 
professional qualifications and, and the overall professionalization of the field. And, and so I've definitely benefited from so many of the people who set that trajectory in motion. And I think I'm, I'm doing what I can and try to do my part to help continue to advance that initiative that was started when I joined the field. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Mark. I, I like what you said about pandemic math, especially in the context of having a, a data-driven conversation like we are today. It's like, how, how many years is a pandemic here equal to? You know, one thing I've learned about you over the years is how adept you are at strategically using and leveraging data. How would you define the phrase data-driven leadership in the context of education abroad? In any context, I tend to think of data-driven leadership as challenging assumptions and gathering information to provide guidance and insight into important decisions. And so in, in education abroad, I, I think we like to tell ourselves a lot of stories about how things are. And those stories go back many, many years and are, are based on assumptions that may have proven accurate back when that, that story was first crafted, but don't continue to hold true year after year. Using data to poke holes in those stories and to challenge those assumptions is a really important part of uh, where I think the field needs to go. I think that's really well said. A lot of times I think in, in this field, we've operated on hunches and like you said, stories and and I think this is a really great way to be more precise in, in, in where we're going and what we want to be doing. And I'd love to set the stage a bit more and, and gather some words of wisdom for folks who may not be using data in their daily work yet or who wish to expand their knowledge. How can our listeners begin to expand upon their current practices around collecting, analyzing, and acting upon data? Well, I think it goes to what we were just talking about, which is taking a step back and looking at what are those stories that you tell about your students, about your office. Um, I always get real nervous when a room full of middle-aged, middle-career education abroad professionals sit in a room and make decisions about what students want without having some specific types of insight into those particular students. And so I think in, in terms of where to begin, I think that's where you have to start is um, what do you know about your students? What do you know to be true? What do you know about your institution? Do you know what your institutional demographics are? If you don't, that's, that's critical data. How are you going to answer the question, um, do my study abroad participants reflect the demographic composition of my institution? if you don't know what the demographic composition of your institution is. So I think those are the kinds of early types of things that people who are just getting started um, can can begin with, and then you can grow from there. As you and I both know, Mark, you know, most, if not all, institutions have an institutional research office or at least someone who holds that, that function. Um, do you have any suggestions on how we as education abroad practitioners can build bridges to, to institutional research? I mean, I think if you've worked with anyone in your institutional research office, they got there because of their love for data. And so if you approach them and say, hey, I would like to learn more about the institutional data that you have access to, and I'd like to start to do more in looking at 
my particular subset of students within this institution. I think after they um, fell off their chair and got back up and were excited <laughs> that somebody really wanted to partner with them in this way, I you know I think that that they would be really eager to work with you. At the same time, I want to I want to put a word of caution out there that they're also likely spread too thin, understaffed and under-resourced, just like every other office is. So I think you have to make sure that you're approaching them with some recognition of you're adding one more thing onto their already very full plate. And, and just bringing some intentionality to that conversation and knowing what you want to get out of it. I, I really like that. Um, how has the adoption of data-driven practices impacted the decision-making process in education abroad at UMass Amherst, especially at that, that leadership level where you inhabit? Uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of great examples of that. I think one that comes to mind is how we manage our portfolio of programs. Uh, I, you know, we have quite a lot on offer for our students. and That is a point of pride for us, but at times a portfolio can get too large and too unwieldy and the maintenance of that is you know is expensive prior to my coming to umass they had a, a real wild and unwieldy portfolio and they went through this incredible exercise of this very thorough analysis using this very well-developed rubric to analyze all of the programs in their portfolio and it was incredibly well done and it did a phenomenal job of almost cutting it in half, uh, which is, I think, where it needed to be. But I think it's now our responsibility to make sure we don't get back to that point. And we do that by looking at our participation numbers. So we do a snapshot every year of how many students went on particular programs. And based on those numbers, we can see our students are voting with their feet. And it doesn't mean that we drop every low enrollment program, but it allows us to challenge that assumption of students like this type of program, students don't like that type of program, and make a data-informed decision about which programs to keep and which to drop from our portfolio. You know, I often think about the paradox of choice when it comes to what, we're, what how we present options to our students, especially now, right? You know, because they can be overwhelmed with with hundreds of options. And so, you know, what you're talking about is, is not like data-driven leadership is not a one and done type of thing. You can't do one survey once and have it be a done deal. I think what you and your team are so good at is revisiting things, you know, once a year, kind of every summer. So can you talk about a, a bit how this is an ongoing process and not a, not necessarily one survey and then that's it? What we do is that regular analysis of it and try to think about what's the what's that larger goal right what are we what are we working towards and and the path to getting there like you were saying is is not to simply set it and forget it right to to make sure that we're we're continuing to revisit you know we all know that knowledge is power mark and and how could international educators leverage the data that they collect to secure funding advocate for professional development opportunities justify increased staffing and, and generally use it to make make offices stronger? I think it's a, it's a great question, right? Modern institutions of higher education are using this, you know, data-driven leadership. Um, and, and so 
we need to make sure that we're that we're participating in that and that we're um, at the table with the right data to make our case. So we know how impactful study abroad programs can be. We know the positive attributes that they provide to our students. So we know that there are there are at least statistically relevant markers that show the impact that uh, an education abroad experience can have for students' uh, retention at an institution, for their rates of graduation, admittance to graduate school, et cetera, et cetera. But if, if we keep that to ourselves, or if all we're doing is walking around saying how wonderful study abroad is, we're not making an effective case to the right decision makers at the institution. So I think especially now in in the post-pandemic or peri-post-pandemic era that we are in, um, it, it is so important for us to be able to advocate. And we know of so many horrible instances of offices being shut down and not being restored post-pandemic that it's so much more important for you as a leader in, in your institution to be able to articulate the value in, in really meaningful ways at your institution. You know, earlier I said data over stories, but now I'm thinking that what you're doing at UMass is using data to tell a story, right? Because stories, we know in our field that stories are powerful, um, but using data to inform those stories, I think is a really effective way to, to advocate for yourself and for your team. You know, we've been talking about how powerful data is. Uh, and that said though, we still need to use care when we collect it and when we use it. How can we ensure that the data we collect is representative of the students on our campus and on our programs? I think that goes back to making sure that you understand your institutional composition and so that you are making certain that when you're pulling your data together, that you're looking at, at how that fits in the context of your broader institution. And I think it's also going into this process fully aware that the data might not tell you the story you want to hear. It might have some enlightening, but also challenging insights into what's going on, right? You can tell yourself a story. Maybe you meet with a lot of first-generation students as a study abroad advisor or as a director. And in your mind, your narrative about your student is, wow, we're sending a lot students and we're saying a lot of first generation students abroad well maybe it's the case that you met with all nine of them so you met with nine out of nine but there's only nine out of the 900 students who are going abroad and if all you're doing is making that assumption then you have an incorrect narrative about the makeup of your of your outbound students so i think that it's it's not just about the practice of of gathering the data responsibly and and making sure you're using appropriate data collection methods, but it's also um, being really honest with yourself and saying, "I might not like this, but this is this is the reality here in my institution." Can you share a specific instance where data played a pivotal role in shaping a new initiative in, in education abroad at UMass? You know, I want to go back to the example I gave earlier of how we were looking at our portfolio and how we were using, you know, a, a data informed approach. And 
the first time we did it as as a team, we ran the numbers and we looked at programs pre-pandemic and post-pandemic that were enrolling five or less students over a five-year period. And we had this great spreadsheet and we put it up on the big screen in our in our conference room with all of the advisors around. And we went through line by line. It was a long meeting, but it was really helpful. But I found at various times we would get to a particular program and the numbers were low and we were making the decision to cut that program. On more than one occasion, somebody chimed in and said, no, but students love that program. And that was an opportunity for me to say, but but they don't. If they loved that program, there would be higher volume. And maybe that program was really impactful for those three students, but no one has come back to that program. And we have other opportunities for students who are interested in that type of program. Those exchanges, that that the outcome of that meeting wasn't just that we reduced the portfolio, but that we started to, as a team, shift our thinking. And so that it wasn't just me and my director who were pushing this idea of using numbers to think critically about our portfolio. Everyone started to buy into that idea to say, if the program isn't worthwhile in, in terms of the participation rates, then it's not worth it for us to continue to have it in our portfolio. Data speaks. I like that. Data to some can be an intimidating topic. And so I'd like to remind our listeners that none of us are in this business alone. You know, we, we touched upon institutional research earlier, but I'm wondering, Mark, if you have any other suggestions about how, how our listeners can ally with other folks on their campus or other folks in the field to advance their work in this area. I think if you look within your institution, it's not just institutional research that's the champion of data. They're they're the clearinghouse of data. It's academic advising units, it's student success initiatives, it's campus units that serve underrepresented populations. They're all looking at things like how many students do I have? How do I get more of them? What's interesting to them? And what what programs are effective? If they're doing an uh, an on campus event, they want to make sure that they're going to get students there. They're going to take attendance and they're going to say this was higher, this was lower. What what happened? What what could we do better? That's using data to make decisions. And so when we're when we're looking for how do we get out of our own bubble and engage with with others on on sort of this this approach of using data, I, I think it's it's about asking your yeah. colleagues and counterparts some of the same questions you're then asking yourself when you get started and going around and saying, well, what what kinds of things are you seeing? What are your challenges? Where are your pain points in doing recruitment or student engagement? And where are their commonalities? Where are, and, and within those commonalities, there's opportunities for collaboration and partnership. And then, you know, within the within this field, there's lots of movement towards starting to compile and share our data. There's the Cassie initiatives. It's a subset of the Nessie student engagement survey. And I think it's led by really, really smart people out of the University of Georgia system. And it's ways for institutions to compile their participation data and their student 
demographic data and get some really large scale data sets and then be able to compare your data against your peer institutions. On the topic of peer institutions, I think that's another thing. You might have your own idea of who your similar offices are, right? If you're a small liberal arts college with 1,300 students total enrollment and a study abroad office of 1.5 FPE, I'm not your peer institution. Don't, don't compare what you're doing to what we're doing at UMass. The scale is different. When you're talking with institutional research, ask them, hey, who are our peer institutions? And then look at their study abroad programs and say, all right, well, maybe this peer institution isn't a great fit because they don't have quite the same study abroad resources that, that we do. And then you can go out and sort of find your own. You can look at open doors to see who's sending similar volumes and, and sort of see what other sources of collaboration and data you can find. I love that. And to that, I would add that provider reps, such as myself, can often be a, a connecting tissue when it comes to, you know, if you were to come out to be, hey, I, I need to talk to someone who's like UMass. Who can you connect me with to help with that kind of benchmarking process? So I really like that, Mark. That's a great point. You know, as international educators, we have choices around how we collect data. One way we can do that is through software. Could you please share your thoughts with us around the best practices for extrapolating data from a database like via TRM or Teradata? When you said software, I thought we were going to have to do a whole other podcast and, and there probably <laughs> is a whole other That's podcast. That's season three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with, with the software products that are out there, I, I think it's important to remember that whatever you're using, that's simply a tool and and how that tool performs is really about the user. When it comes to you know the best practices for getting data out, I think it, it sort of goes to the you know the Geigo principle, garbage in, garbage out. How is your software platform structured? When you designed it, did you map out a full set of you know demographic data to be pulled from your institution's student information system? Is that current uh, integration? effective in giving you all of the information that you need about your students. I think one thing to keep in mind is that that may have been set when you first got your software product. Maybe that's 10 or 12 years ago. If you haven't revisited your integration and your, your mapping to your information software, I would suggest revisiting that and, and looking at it's not permanent. You can add to it. Keep in mind that that will mean that you have new data that doesn't exist in your old data set, but that shouldn't be a reason why you don't build a more robust data set for you to be able to move forward with. Um, and and so I you know I think that as, as you were saying, Zach, this isn't this is a process that needs sort of continual input. You shouldn't let anything sit untended for ten or twelve years. And, and then, you know, what you're doing with the, with the data, whether you're putting it into spreadsheets and, and using those to make charts or whether you're putting it into something more advanced or sophisticated where you've got an overlay, maybe you're even large enough that you have um, a backend integration into a product like Salesforce where you're able to get all kinds of dashboards. Again, it's, it's a tool and it's how well you use it. So 
you could have all the fanciest dashboards in the world, but if you don't use them, if you don't understand that data, if it's not representative of your, you know, institutional composition, then this great fancy tool isn't being as effective as it could be. Mark, what suggestions do you have about how international educators can make the time for data when the day-to-day of our work can be so consuming with emails and student appointments and just all the things that come with being in education abroad? How do we make time for data? I I think you have to make time for data. I don't think that you can see this as an add-on. I think that this is core and central to what we do. I, I know that's hard. Not everything can be the number one priority, right? That's sort of counterintuitive. And I'm not suggesting that data needs to be your number one priority every day, but if you're not making it a part of your regular approach to each application cycle, then you're really leaving a lot on the table in terms of how you could be growing, how you could be tapping into new student populations. Um, and and so, I, you know, I think that it's whether you're a one-person office or a 30-person office, there needs to be a sort of regular and intentional focus on using data to make decisions and advance the work of the office. How can we balance data-driven decisions with the more qualitative aspects of a student study abroad experience? At the, at the core of what I really love about this field is that we have, I think, not lost sight of what is truly important at the end of the day, which is the individual student. As I was saying, we send a significant number of students abroad on a yearly basis. And when I was talking earlier about, you know, high volume, low touch, it's important to note that it's not no touch, right? There still is that interface with the student. There still is that focus on making sure they have what they need. And so I think that there's there's a time and place for sort of macro level analysis of programs and lumping them into that high volume, low touch category. But there's also the micro level, how is this student doing? And is this a student who needs an extra several touches along the way to get them from an interested student to an actual participant? And I think that's where practice, the art of advising comes into play is connecting with your student and knowing what it is that they need to help them make a decision about whether studying abroad is right for them. And and I think the other thing I'll add, when I when I look at things like, you know, advising volume and appointments and, and those types of things, for me as a leader, never through the lens of sort of performance and how the team member is doing much more through how is this working or not working in in the context of supporting our students and giving them what they need now mark i'd like for you to take a peek into your crystal ball there up in amherst what future trends or developments do you see coming down the pike and how data will be used in the field of education abroad in the coming years. What I'm excited about and what we're starting to look at at UMass is who are the students who aren't going abroad? We want to grow and and we want to send more students. And I think it's important that I'm, I'm clear, we don't want to send more students just because 
that makes us look cool. We want to send more students because we firmly believe that there are students on our campus who aren't accessing this opportunity, could benefit from it and would benefit from it if we could get the right information in front of them. And so in order to do that, we need to get some data to inform that story. So right now it's about what we believe and what we think. We have this narrative that we've told ourselves about this student population. And so we now need to gather data to make sure we know who they are and that we better understand what their barriers and limitations are. Some of that data is quantitative. How many of them are there, who they are, where they're located in the institution. But some of that is also qualitative in terms of the barriers and what what challenges they perceive that that limit them from from accessing this this is where it's hard it is that we don't know who they are and and so what we're getting a sense of as we look at the data about the students that we have we're then looking to sort of extrapolate back from that who's missing so if i now understand my institutional context and my institutional demographics and I look at my study abroad participants, then the differences where we're not representing the student makeup of UMass is where we need to be focusing on. And and so that's the that's the you know the sort of the black hole in our in our data set where we've gotta we've got to sort of fill that in. And so that that I think is is where we're going next. And I think that that's I don't want to say that we're the trendsetter in this particular space. I think that overall, there's this sense, certainly among my peers and the people that I talk to, that that's where we need to be focused, that we're not going to grow our, our numbers by simply working harder to recruit from within the population that we're currently tapped into. Yeah, you bring up a really good point and one that I, I think about a lot. Like, How do we survey or measure the students who aren't studying abroad, right? And what happens to the student who starts an application and then you never hear from for them what, again? For, some, for whatever reason, they don't follow through with it. Yeah, that's another great population to, to read. Yeah, so we, we don't know because they don't usually tell us. Um, back to your question about the, you know, the software piece, there are more tools coming for us to be able to challenge that. If you've ever unsubscribed from an email list, sometimes you click on subscribe and they just, th- that's it, end of story. Other times they ask you, hey, can you tell us why you're unsubscribing? Um, and sometimes I respond to that and sometimes I don't. But what we're hoping is that with tools like that, we'll be able to get some insight or some information from those students who are saying, I thought this was interesting enough to start an application and I'm stopping now and we want to know why you're stopping. Do you think, Mark, that that is an area where we can tap into more qualitative data? Like, should offices be thinking about student focus groups to assess them some of this information? The focus group is is another really important tool for collecting data, and certainly in that in that qualitative category. Uh, and and I think, you know, I I've been talking about data in sort of the the holistic sense of it, but there are really important distinctions between quantitative and qualitative data. Absolutely. As we begin to wrap up here, I just have one more question for you, my friend. As you think about education abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? The students. I I think there was a lot of panic 
certainly back in late 2020 and early 2021, are they going to come back? I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, where we were in that particular space, that that pandemic informed panic was very real. Maybe now two years removed from it, it seems a little like, what were we so worried about? But I think it is that our our students are wonderfully resilient. They they truly fundamentally believe themselves to be invincible for better or worse. <laughs> and so they are ready and eager to go abroad. And so we get to continue to have that wonderful privilege of facilitating that experience. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end things than right there. Mark Ekman, thank you, sir. This has been such a fun and inspiring conversation as we as we dive, dive deep into data. So thank you for being here. Happy to be here. As you know, I will always talk about data. <laughs> and to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics on international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Keltzer and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives for Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together. 